We're gonna go ahead and get started. According to my watch, it's nine o'clock. I'm not sure, maybe we're a little behind. I haven't heard it yet. Wanna get rolling though so we can get through this lesson. I hate time changes. This one always gets me every year. Uh, probably have a bunch of that show up next hour for worship and may think they're coming for Bible study. But uh, We left off last week with this slide, so we're going to start here this week. But before we get started, is there any prayer requests or announcements? I've got some handouts coming around for lesson two, so you'll be getting those momentarily if you want to. Wayne and Tom are coming by. You have to fold them yourselves because I didn't get here in time to get the folded machine going. So I don't see any, any hands this morning. Let's, let's bow together in prayer as we start off class. Heavenly Father, we are so incredibly thankful for another day that we can gather together as your family, that we can open up our Bibles and study from it, that we can see exactly uh, what you have said and, and given to us. We hope that we can learn from it, that we can gather some type of a lesson and, and information to encourage us in our faith as we go through this study this quarter. God, we're thankful for this congregation. We're thankful for our family. We're thankful for the many blessings that you've bestowed on the congregation here at Dalreda. We ask that you continue to watch over us and be with the leadership and the elders as they make decisions about the congregation, help them to continually look to your word for guidance so that we will make sure that this congregation stays true to your word and faithful to your purpose. We are thankful for Jesus who died on the cross for our sins and it's through his name that we pray. Amen. We ended off last week with regard to the Holy Spirit. We uh, left off with this slide and I wanted to at least touch on it because I think it's pretty important to talk about the plurality of God as we go forward in this study and as we think about this. If you remember, just a brief recap for those of you who may not have been here last week, uh, our first lesson initially looked at the Godhead and the idea of the, 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 the joinder of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. As we embark on the study of the Holy Spirit, we want to look real quickly at what the Scriptures have to say about the plurality of God. And if you look at the Scriptures... Uh, you can't help but see uh, scriptural references seen to the plurality of the Godhead throughout the Bible. Specifically, as you think in the beginning, uh, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, when God created the world, a plurality is seen there in the words that are used. And if you open up your Bible to Genesis 1:26, you will not be able to miss the fact, at least maybe from here on out, that God said actually let us make man or let us make uh, man in our own image according to our likeness. You see the plurality of the pronouns used here uh, for God. And unless you understand the concept of the Godhead, and unless you understand that there is a plurality in the Godhead, this becomes a confusing passage for you because you're thinking, well, what do you mean let us? Is God referring to him and the angels? Is he referring to him and some other type of uh, supernatural deity type being? Um, no, in fact, God is looking at and reflecting on the plurality of himself and indicating here that there is a plurality in the Godhead scene. 11, uh, Genesis chapter 11, verse uh, uh, 7 through 8 also goes through and uh, uses this plurality as well. If you look in uh, Genesis chapter 11, verses 7 through 8, uh, this is the Tower of Babel. In fact, when God saw that the, the 
people that his creation had become too puffed up of themselves. Uh, the decision made there, verse 6, of course, is that they are, it says they are one people and they all have, the, all have the same language. This is what they began to do and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. In verse 7 through 8, you're going to see this plurality seen again here in the, in the words used in the scripture. Verse 7, come let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. And the Lord scattered them abroad from, uh, from there over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city. And so here a reflection here in verse 7 is the idea of the plurality of God. Again, let us go down. And then you see the carrying out of that uh, volition in verse 8. Uh, where they actually go to where God goes down and it says the Lord. Uh, and if your Bibles have um, all caps usually, Lord is there in all caps. And so it would be a word that reflects uh, the Yahweh or Yahuwah or uh, Jehovah is what uh, the, the translation usually becomes. But it becomes this word used for God in the Old Testament and uh, usually used for the Almighty God, the All Powerful God, the one giving commandments. And here uh, it says the Lord went down and scattered them. So the plurality of God is seen in verses 7 through 8 of Genesis chapter 11. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4. There's a couple of points of this one uh, to point out with respect to our study on the Godhead. In Deuteronomy chapter 4 you'll remember this is an admonition uh, from God to the people as to what they are supposed to do. And as he, he encourages Israel to follow the laws which he's given and commanded them, they are urged to obey God's law. And you see down in verses, uh, chapter 6, verse 4, uh, the encouragement there from uh, God uh, is to hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one God. You shall love the Lord with God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words which I command to you today shall be on your heart. And so the word one there comes from the word ekad, uh, it refers to a compound unity. And so when you read this passage in English language, it's, it's lost with regard to the plurality in the sense that this is not necessarily talking about a singular individual, uh, but it's talking about a unified individual, a compound unity, not an absolute one. So other biblical tests illustrate this type of compound unity as well, such as Genesis 1, 5, 2, 4, 24, and Ezra chapter 2, verse 64. Uh, but the absolute oneness is used uh, by the word yakid, and it appears 12 times, but never in reference to Jehovah God. So if you look at a, a type of a word study, and I don't want to get into a Hebrew word study, it hurts my brain. Um, but these two words are two different words used for one in the Old Testament. One, though, gives a sense of a solidarity, of a, a singularity of uh, something, but it's never used with regard to God. The other one, Ikad, is used, and it's, it's a, a word that kind of illustrates and gives a, it conveys the idea that there is multiple in one, a compound unity of bringing together multiples and bringing them into one singular. And so that is the word that is used for God in the Old Testament. So even this passage where some people may look at and say, well, it says here the Lord is one. Well, yeah, the Lord is one. But when you go a little deeper and you look at the, the word that is used, and it's important what words are used. And the word used here gives us an idea of a compound unity, not a singular unity. I hope that makes sense and conveys in the, the English language. So we have a plural oneness stated here even in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4. Uh, Matthew chapter 6 
Uh, Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, talks about all three persons of the Godhead specifically mentioned here. And uh, if there's not three, then there's a gigantic hoax. And so if you look in, in Matthew chapter 3, uh, real quick, look at that passage. I just want to point that out as a New Testament passage. We're going to get into some of these as we go into our study even more. But uh, thinking about the plurality here, but 16 verses 17, Jesus came up from the, immediately from the water. Behold, the heavens were open. He saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And so you see the, the interposing uh, of all three individuals involved with regard to being deity. You have the Spirit, you have God, and you have Jesus. Distinctly individual persons that are seen here in one passage interacting, communicating with each other, as you see in verse 17, with God the Father saying, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And so you see this, this interaction, this plurality with regard to God uh, here in Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, uh, as we talk about baptism, we're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, as Matthew 28 talks about there in verse 19. Uh, Isaiah chapter six, ver uh, 64, verse 8 John 1, verse 3, Job 26, verse 13. All these scriptures teach that the Father created, the Son created, and the Spirit created. Isaiah 44, verse 24 states that Jehovah alone created. But how can this be true unless the Godhead has a plurality about them? And so you see the, the scriptures going together to reconcile any alleged discrepancies you may have with regard to it. Isaiah 44 may say Jehovah alone created. But in fact, Jehovah alone is not alone. It's not singular. It's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Creator was God. Let us make man in our image. And so the plurality of the Godhead is seen in scriptures. Again, it may hurt our brains to think about three in one being a singular, being a unified being, being God. But that's what the scriptures say. And so it becomes a matter of acceptance by faith as we move forward in our study, as we think about the idea of God being multiple beings uh, together as one. It may hurt our brains to think about, but it's going to be something that, that helps understand and explains some of the contradictions or alleged con contradictions that, that individuals in this world, in the religious world as a whole, like to throw out as the Bible being false because this concept helps answer those questions. And ultimately, as we go through the study, you're going to see it helps answer other questions as well, because it helps us understand what God is and who God is, and ultimately what God does with respect to God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as one. Three beings being one uh, is a very, very, I think, interesting and important concept with regard to uh, what we're wanting to uh, see in the scriptures. Uh, three modes, there are, there are some that try to reject the Godhead, and real quickly, I just want to throw these out because I didn't get to them last week, but as clear as the Godhead is presented in scripture, there are some still that try to dis dispute it and reject the Godhead. They claim that there's only one person in the Godhead, and, and this one has been manifested in three different forms, being the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is especially true of Jesus only or the oneness doctrine. And so you have uh, them trying to dispute that, that God is actually the different persons. And so, and, and I, I understand people's problems with this. Again, as I told you last week, and, and I've carried it on into this week, it kind of hurts my mind to think about it. And in fact, what we're almost doing is ascribing a multiple personality disorder to God. 
And, and, and that's kind of a, a weird thought process. We usually see that as being a bad thing on this world. You know, when you have that kind of a, a, a diagnosis by some psychiatrist or psychologist, the idea that someone suffers from multiple personality disorder, you know, that can, can cause people and humans a whole lot of problems. But with God, it doesn't. <laughs> If that's what we want to call it, if we want to say he's got a multiple personality disorder, that's fine. I wouldn't say it's a disorder at all because it's, it's God. Uh, the multiple personalities that are engrossed with, within the Jehovah God are the idea that the personalities are important. People try to dispute that because they're uncomfortable with that. They don't fully understand it as I've struggled to explain it to you. They struggle to understand it themselves. And so these scholars think they've got to have some type of description. They've got to have some type of understanding or analysis because they've got to have it. They've got to know. They've got to be able to convey it to others. So they struggle with it. They come out with this oneness doctrine that really disputes the idea that God is three in one. They try to get around that fact. And the problem is when you compare it with the scriptures, the scriptures are pretty straightforward and plain. It may be something that's hard to grasp for us. It may be something hard to understand for us, but it's something that exists for us. And so we can't get around it by trying to create like things like the oneness doctrine. Some try to say the Holy Spirit's only some type of a force or breath. We're going to get into that this week. Uh, that it's not really God. It's an it. That's their argument. He is not an it. And we're going to get into that as we think about this week. We think about the personality of the Holy Spirit. The fact that there is a person he is a person. It's not an it. Yes. Right. And, the, and that is, a perfect unity of personalities would create no problems. And of course, God being perfect in all ways, that's going to be the perfect unity that exists there between them. Correct. Right. We're not going to, uh, our DNA is not going to start melding and fuse, right, yeah. But there is an idea of being perfectly united together. And there is a translation with regard to spiritual lives. And the idea that there is a unification of God because of purpose, because of devotion, because of love. All these kind of underlying things that creates that perfect union. They are joined together in perfect harmony. Uh, you can translate that to a marriage in, in many ways as well. And I, I see, I think we talked about last week, the idea that some people try to look at the Godhead and compare it to you know, a marriage and a fam familial type of relationship. And, and you kind of see that because without that unity, without that merging together of purpose and of mind and will and, and intention and love and emotion and all those things, uh, you don't have perfect unity, but God does. God does have that perfect unity. And again, the, the other way, rejection you see on the screen there, some claim there are actually three gods instead of one God. And so you have a pluralistic approach to God. Uh, that's a very dangerous road to go down. And you can see the ultimate results of that by looking around us. When you see the pluralistic societies that we have, 
uh, or have seen in the history of the world. They kind of tend to go by the wayside, but uh, you see the, the pluralistic uh, approach of trying to say there's multiple gods because they try to say, well, this God does this and this God does that and this God's responsible for this and the, they can't intermix and they can't intermingle before those. Well, that's not what you see in Scripture with regard to God. Uh, God is unified, as George just said, and the idea that perfect unity brings about an impression of who God is and what He does for us in our world today. And so you'll see that uh, as we move on with regard to our study and as we look at uh, the things in our lessons uh, throughout this quarter, the importance of who God is and what He does is seen in the, the purposes behind um, His actions and you see it behind His very nature of being three, three in one. And I don't like to even say three gods because they're not distinctive. They are joined together in a way that I can't probably ever fully comprehend or I will never fully be able to convey to you, unfortunately. I wish there was some magic way to describe it, Wayne, but there's not. And so you see that in our lives and you almost see it, uh, why God and why ultimately we're, we're told even uh, in the scriptures in the New Testament to live by faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. And there's a very real sense of that when we start thinking about the nature of God and who God is. And specifically who the Holy Spirit is and what He does in our lives. Because that becomes a very real scenario for us to walk by faith and not by sight. Because we cannot see the Spirit. In fact, we can't really feel the Spirit you get away from those terminologies. You, you, your senses cannot be involved with respect to God and the existence of God necessarily of, as a being. We can look around us and see the evidence. I, I love those kind of arguments with regard to teleological and, and the creation and the cosmological arguments. Looking around us and, and analyzing the things that are around us and how we can have no other explanation but who God is. But in reality, when we get down to it, we know this as adults. We walk by faith as Christians. The idea that we have faith in the unseen God because of who He is and what He does for us. The same thing goes with the Holy Spirit. And as you see the Holy Spirit and as we think about the Holy Spirit, you've got to kind of walk by faith. And I'm not saying you toss everything out the window. You don't toss and throw it all down the kitchen sink, so to speak. Your rationale, your, your mind, your belief, your logic has got to be part of that. But as you look at the Scriptures, the Scriptures are kind of voluminous with regard to the work of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see today the personality of the Holy Spirit. You cannot avoid those factors as you look at the inspired Word of God. And so that gives us that undergirding that we're going to ultimately need uh, for our faith and our Christian lives as we move forward. John, yes. There is a, a realization of the roles that God has, and that helps us, I believe, differentiate between God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, because it ultimately, as you said, it's not hard for us to grasp the idea that we have different roles in our lives. Now, I think it goes a little bit beyond that with regard to the spiritual senses, because as you look, the, the Scriptures talk about them being distinctive personalities. 
And so being a, a distinctive person, although being combined in one, gets a little bit deeper than just distinctive roles. But I think it, what you'll see with regard to it is the scripture does tell us these different roles that the Spirit has, that the, the, the Son has, that God the Father has. And we can see that historically, and we can see it even moving toward the future as to what roles they have moving forward as well. And I think that helps clarify and helps us understand a little bit better. It's still a little deep for us to understand that you have three personalities combined into one, uh, distinctive persons. Uh, being combined as being one. But again, with God being able to do whatever he wants to do, it's, we can't put limitations on that. And I think that's what sometimes we get caught up on in our finite type of a mindset. That we, we, can't, we have a very difficult time to understand the fact that, that God can be three, but yet God is one. And it's very, very deep for us. Melvin. Yeah, it doesn't. You just kind of let it go. I mean, you've got to, you just kind of let it go to the fact that you may not fully be able to understand or exemplify it, no doubt. And I, I like what you said of trying to force the supernatural into the natural. It is a, it's an impossible feat. It's not just hard, guys. It is impossible to do. And so you've got to, you've got to somewhat understand and, and just accept it. It's more of not an understanding. It's more of an accepting, an acceptance of the fact uh, versus trying to fully understand it. As I said last week, I like to, I've used the egg example, and I don't think it's a, a, a I think it's faulty with regard to it. I, I use the triangle. I think it helps show it a little bit better. But in, in reality, trying to force this supernatural concept into some kind of a natural uh, mindset is very, very hard to do. Carol? Right. Well, and that's that. You're right, and, and ultimately, the idea, concept of Jesus coming to Earth is what allows us to make a natural to a natural comparison because we know John 1:14. He was made into flesh; he dwelt among men. But you don't have that with regard to the Holy Spirit. He wasn't given fleshly form. God the Father, there's nowhere indicative that, that the Father has taken on fleshly form. Uh, we don't really know what Jesus looked like, but we can try to parallel it, right? We know he's from Middle Eastern area, so in our minds we kind of have this Middle Eastern skin tone and the, maybe the features of it. It said he wasn't a very attractive man necessarily, so you know he's not going to be the, the best looking ones, although if you looked at the artist's renderings of it, you'd never know that because they always seem to render him as being a very attractive male. 
um, really more white than Middle Eastern, too, if you look at most of them. It's a very interesting dynamic with regard to a lot of those things. But our minds can start wrapping around that idea of deity being in bodily form because it actually occurred. And then when we try to translate that to God the Father or the Holy Spirit, you know, you have a much more difficult process there because it cannot be done. The images, and, and here's a question here with regard to what comes to mind when you hear the Holy Spirit, the first thing that pops in your mind. Of course, I put a graphic on the screen. I kind of gave you all some of the ideas that come in my mind because when I was designing this series, uh, the graphics for it, you kind of see what's in my mind. The idea of fire pops in my mind. Why is that? Well, you see in the scriptures, the idea of, of the spirit being in flames of fire, right? Acts chapter 2, the tongues lit on the apostles' heads above them, indicating that they had the Holy Spirit. And we talk about the baptismal of fire, kind of a, a concept with regard to the Holy Spirit. And then the other idea and the, the visual concept you see on the screen is the idea of a dove. And we just read a passage a moment ago when Christ was baptized and, and he rose up out of the water and, and the idea of the dove lighting upon him. And God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And, and there's other passages that kind of parallel the spirit being there and being around and the spirit of God, you know, landing and, and being in the form of a dove. And so you see those kind of a concepts, but really what else comes to mind with regard to the Holy Spirit? I mean, do we have a visualization of it? We don't. We have a very hard time coming up with You know, we think about rushing and mighty wind, right? I thought about that too as a possible idea because in Acts chapter 2, you know, whenever the, the, the Spirit came upon them, it came as though a rushing and mighty wind is the way some translations talk about it. And so you kind of hit this force, you know, to be reckoned with. You know, we've, we, we've heard the, the, the wind and, you know, and I wasn't awake when it was raining, evidently, last night, but it rained. I don't know if there's wind last night or not, was there? Um, so you've got the, the wind element that we hear on a regular basis during storms. You know, you kind of think of that powerful idea of wind. When I was in high school, I experienced a, a straight line wind, they called them. It's pretty much like a tornado. Well, I thought it was a tornado when I was in it. Took the roof of the church building off where I was. We were there studying for Bible Bowl, and the, the roof went off the building, and it was an experience like none other. But I will never forget the sound of that wind. It sounded like a freight train. And that, that, that idea of the rushing wind, that's what it reminds me of now when I read Acts chapter 2. And so you kind of have that idea about the Spirit. But that's not, a, that's not a personal description, is it? It's kind of like an abstract description. It's something that's kind of out there for us to try and meld together on a physical or a natural sense, but it's not really a fitting full description of the, of, of the Spirit. No, and, and you're right. I mean, that's, and that kind of leads into the idea of the broad views of the Holy Spirit 
that we see with regard to who the Spirit is. And you kind of see these two broad views throughout religious uh, mindsets. You've got the idea that, first of all, that the Spirit is some abstract force or just some type of an influence on individuals. And so it's something that is totally intangible and almost uh, non-person-like. Uh, really, it's not a person versus uh, something. And you kind of see this mindset uh, with regard to the religious world. And you, uh, you see that kind of the flip side there is the idea that he's a fully divine person. And he is someone who is right there in essence just like the Father, just like the Son. And you have this divine personhood uh, that ultimately is, is, un, is, is really understood from the Scriptures of the mindset there. And ultimately, viewpoint number two is what the Scriptures help show. Uh, but you, you struggle with those that have that, that viewpoint number one with regard to the Spirit just being someone with force or someone who exerts some type of an influence without actually being a personality uh, to be understood. Brother Gene. There is a submission aspect of, of the different, well, of Christ for sure, and of the Spirit as well because the Spirit was sent. So you see uh, when Jesus talks about sending the Spirit, uh, there is really kind of an understanding there that Christ has the ability to send the Spirit where He desires or God has that ability to send the Spirit. Philippians chapter 2 underscores the idea of the submission of Christ to God. And I will say I've had some heated debates with brethren that I love dearly of what that really means. And what did God give up when He came? What did Christ the Son give up when He came to earth for our sins? You know, that kind of a concept, but he became subservient. He became submission even to the point of death, right? That's what the scriptures say is that, that, that the submission aspect of Christ to God there is, is definitely something uh, that plays into his personality. Uh, and the same thing with regard to the personality of the Holy Spirit and the idea that, that there is a subservient, I hate to say subservient, I really it's more of a submissive type relationship that the Spirit has with the Father because He was in, indeed sent for a specific purpose. John 17 talks about that. No doubt. And the individuality merges. Yeah, it reminds me, uh, it's very interesting. When you start thinking about this concept of the Godhead and think about the personality of these individuals, it reminds me of a marriage. I think that at that point in time, there's obviously two. We're not going to have a polygamous marriage. We're talking about you know, three or more people being married together. I don't want to get off on that tangent. Um, but when you, when you think about the idea that you have two individuals and, and the idea when you are married that the two became one is what the scriptures talk about. And that's really should be the, the realistic approach to marriage, uh, although I think most of us would admittedly say we struggle with that because we have our individual mentalities, we have our individualistic uh, you know, approach, but we're supposed to be unified. 
in the things that we do. And I think that's why marriages crumble, obviously, because the individual desires overcome the, the pluralistic of the, the marriage. Same kind of thing translates somewhat, I think, to the Godhead with regard to individuals have their distinctive personalities. They have their individual purposes. They have their individual functions, really. Because when you look at the Godhead and you look at the Scriptures talking about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, there are different functions that we're going to see that are prescribed to those through the Scriptures. They divide and conquer in a very realistic form with regard to God being three in one. They divide to the point of purpose for the purpose of functionality in the things that they do. However, they are very unified uh, together as Jehovah God. They are unified together in, in all their will and their purpose and their desires and all those kind of things. And, and what you see from the scriptures is ultimately that they are all persons. We have no problem talking about Christ being a person because he came in flesh, right? So it's easy for us to differentiate God uh, the, the Son being a person and having a distinctive personality. Uh, God the Father, we don't have a problem either. It's very descriptive in the scriptures and because of Christ's position coming here as Philippians 2 talks about you know and, and giving up that right hand of God that that position with God and coming here in the form of man we see that relationship that he then has with his father in heaven so it's not hard for us to understand the father being a distinctive personality and we think about praying to the father oh father which art in heaven hallowed be thy name you know the idea that there's a direction and there is an, an acknowledgement and a respect and a love given and directed toward God the Father, that gives us a very real sense of his personality. The Spirit, on the other hand, is one that's a little bit more ambiguous for us because I think a lot of people are scared to, to study it. Uh, some people are scared to study because it's just one of those ideas that, that they have a hard time, as I've talked about in the previous lesson and even today, trying to struggle with understanding it myself because the Spirit, although very important and has a huge role with regard to the Old and the New Testament, uh, it is something that is uh, a little difficult to understand and grasp. And he becomes a personality very real when you do study these things. And he's a personality for several different reasons. We're not going to get into all of them this morning because obviously if you look at time, we've gone longer, as is usual in my classes. But what we're going to do is going to, we'll start this list today and we're going to continue this. So make sure you stick that handout in your Bible. I'll make some extras for next week for those of you who seem to lose them. Uh, you are as bad as teenagers, I think, sometimes, and you lose the handouts we have in class, and that's okay. So but I'll have some extras next week as we pick up here. But it's important for us to see the Holy Spirit is a person. It's not some intangible, you know, being. It, he's not an it uh, when you consider all the things that the Scripture have to say of, about him. He's not some impersonal, abstract force. He's not just some influence on others. Uh, but the scriptures speak about him being a personal God, a very real being and person that the scriptures talk about very individualistically from the Father and from the Son. You look at it real quickly. We know he's a person because of one, uh, the first reason being uh, the pronouns that are used uh, with regard to him in the scriptures. And the pronouns used and, and, uh, for him real quickly, the New Testament text uses the masculine pronouns to describe the Holy Spirit, John chapter 14, John chapter 16, when Christ talks about the, the Spirit, he's, he, he, he being Christ talks about the Spirit being a he. It is not a, a, a neuter pronoun. It's not one that is, is an it or a thing. Uh, but in fact, the pronouns used in the Scripture, the inspired Word of God, are pronouns that indicate a person being, in this case, a masculine person, 
And they are only used in the Bible uh, in reference to individuals and not for things. So secondly, the next, and this is much bigger obviously, are his works. The works that we see in the New Testament and the Old Testament ascribed and talked about primarily in the New Testament, by the way, uh, that we read in the, the scriptures talking about his works. The Old Testament, we're going to talk about the next lesson, lesson three, which we won't get to probably even next week. But lesson three talks about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And so we're going to kind of do a little bit of a survey of the Old Testament and the Spirit's interaction and involvement and work in the Old Testament. But what you see primarily for us as Christians is the Holy Spirit came, was sent, as we see from Jesus. Uh, Jesus sent him to be that helper, that comforter. And the works that he performs or performed indicate that he is a person. The scripture is very specific in telling what the Spirit does. And so some of all these actions are all indicative of what a person can do. Not, an, not a thing, not something that just sits there. Because if you think about it, if you have just an object, it just sits there. Now, there are some things I guess you can pre-program. Nowadays, we've got these wonderful smart devices, and we've got computers, and, and you've got these things that actually can somewhat think, I guess, and do things on their own. But if you look at the Scriptures and you see the descriptions that are given to the Spirit and the works that He performs, they are indeed things that are part of a person's performance, not a something or an object's performance. And so we see in the Scripture things that the Spirit can do that an inanimate force would be unable to perform and to do. And so what are some of these works? Well, first of all, the, the Spirit speaks. He speaks. First uh, Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, and I'm not going to be able to read all of these Scriptures this morning, but that's why I gave you a handout. But if you look in the Scriptures, it talks about the Spirit speaking to us uh, in, in different ways and in, in different fashions uh, with regard to his role and his purpose. In 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1, the Spirit explicitly or clearly says that in the latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. There you see the description by Paul, or by Peter, no, by Paul to Timothy that the Spirit speaks to him and has told him, has revealed these things to Paul. Uh, the idea that, that the Spirit doesn't just sit there as a bump on a law, but in fact speaks and talks and discusses and, and tells the important matters that need to be uh, understood by the Christians, especially in the first century when they didn't have the inspired Word of God. John chapter 16, uh, verse 13 says, But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. The Spirit speaks. Because of that, he is not just an inanimate object. He is not just some influence. He's not just some abstract force or concept. He is a person because he speaks those things which God wants the people to hear. The Holy Spirit speaks intelligently to intelligent people. Also, you see the Spirit testifies. In John chapter 15 and verse 26, the, uh, the Lord there, in talking about the Spirit, it says, when the Helper comes, the Helper being the Holy Spirit, when He comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will testify about me. And you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. A parallel there as to what duties and responsibilities the Spirit will have. And Jesus here talking to His disciples says that you will be testifying for my behalf because you have been with me from the beginning. We understand that, don't we? 
When you go to a court of law, and I'm there every now and then, when you go to court, you have a trial or you have a hearing, you call witnesses to the stand to testify and provide evidence, firsthand knowledge about what they have seen, what they have heard, what they know. You have that understanding that when someone testifies, they are giving you solid proof. And in fact, it becomes someone testifying. And the parallel by Christ is given here in John chapter 15 is that the Spirit is no different than the other individuals that will be testifying on my behalf. The Spirit is a person just as the disciples were persons. And the Spirit will testify on His behalf and will give proof and will give support, will give credible evidence because He is a person who can do so. You see in John chapter 14 that the Spirit also teaches. He teaches us. And the role of the Spirit is really talked about a lot here in, in, in Christ little uh, exhortation here to his disciples starting in, in chapter 14 and going a couple of chapters over uh, with regard to the, the teachings that he's trying to lay and, and on them and to leave for them so that when he leaves this earth that they have this information to be able to be influential Christians on his behalf. And in chapter 14, Christ talks about the Spirit teaching others. John chapter 14, verse 26, it says... But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And again, we read in chapter 15 over here that when the Helper comes, he's going to be uh, testifying. Uh, so you have the testi testimonial aspect, but that's really to prove a point. By the way, tes testimony is used to prove something. In this case, it's going to be proving the deity of Christ. It's going to be proving that what Christ said was indeed true, that what he did on this earth was from God, not of himself. But you also have the aspect that there's going to be a teaching that the Spirit evokes uh, to others. And the Helper, when he was sent from God, one of his purposes, one of his goals, one of the things that he did was to teach others. And in the first century, he taught them in a very direct way. He teaches us continually even today by inspiring the Word of God, as we know. The, the Spirit teaches. He teaches. Now, an inanimate, abstract concept does not teach. It's there. It may be used as a teaching tool, but it does not teach. Because teaching requires an intelligence. Teaching requires someone who understands what it means to clearly communicate. Teaching requires someone to have an understanding about a concept before you then convey it to someone else. And so the Spirit teaches us because He is intelligent, He's able, He's capable, he, he's, he's, uh, he's got that ability to, to communicate. And you've got to have that in order to teach. The Spirit teaches us. He's able to search the infinite mind of God, and then communicate that mind to us as mere mortals. Go from that supernatural to the natural is what the Spirit's job is, is to allow us to, to have these supernatural important concepts being brought down to our natural finite minds so that we will be able to comprehend and know all those things which are essential for our lives. Deuteronomy 29, 29, don't forget, there are some things that are unknowable. And, and that's because they're not revealed for us. If they're not revealed for us, they may not be necessary for our edification, for our teaching, for our training. Uh, you know, we don't really necessarily need to know. We may want to because we're curious. The Spirit teaches all those things which are necessary for godly living, 
which are necessary for us to know what it means to be a Christian, which are necessary for us to be able to attain that eternal life one day in heaven. The Spirit teaches. He taught it to them. He teaches us today. We're going to pick up here next week talking about the Spirit being a person and looking at His works and other characteristics that help underscore. I'm using the word underscore once today, Monica, I think. Underscores how how the Holy Spirit is a person and not just a something. Appreciate y'all's kind attention this morning.